Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, and I'll be flying solo with you this week. John Mitchell, unfortunately, cannot be with us today. So we will be pushing off the ACC preview once again. For those of you who have been coming back diligently the past couple of weeks, hoping to hear our breakdown of ACC play this season, we sincerely apologize. But with John not here, it just seemed improper to continue on alone in that regard, because you don't get the wit and wisdom that he brings in these breakdowns as well. So instead, what I want to do today is break down a discussion that's near and dear to my heart as a project that's been consuming me for years now. That specifically is a discussion of the national championship and how we think about the national championship. Specifically, I want to re-center the fact for all of us that love this sport That whatever we call the national championship ultimately remains mythical even in the 21st century. Now, this might seem absolutely crazy for those of you listening, especially since we've gone through 16 years of the Bowl Championship Series and now six years of the college football playoff, which have explicitly been designed to match number one versus number two or in the most recent years, to match the top four teams in a playoff bracket to determine who is the best team in the land in a more definitive fashion. Ultimately, however, what I hope to show you today by walking you through some of this history and applying that to how we think about the present situation in 2020 It ultimately has you seeing that this is a mythical construct. This is a story that we college football fans tell ourselves about ourselves and about the sport we love. So with that said, we're going to be walking through five key parts today. So bear with me. I just want to give you a brief introduction of where we're going. In the next segment, what we'll be talking about is the history of national championship claims in the earliest eras of the sport, before polls were introduced. We'll look at how this idea of a championship first took root, and even indeed see where the idea of the national championship being mythical first took hold. In the, in the segment after that, part two we'll be looking at the history of national championships in the poll era. So looking at that era between 1936, when the AP poll first comes out, up until the early 1990s, when we start to see these nascent movements to create a more definitive championship structure. In part three, we're going to look at the last three decades of this sport. We're going to look at the Bull Coalition and the Bull Alliance that preceded the BCS. We'll break down what the BCS did for our national championship narratives. And then we'll assess the college football playoff era and see how the myth remains within this national championship structure. In part four, we need to look at this broad history 
to see who counts in the national championship discussion. This is an era where we can look at things like historically black colleges and universities and the way that they were historically segregated out of this national championship picture. In that same way, we can see how this informs the treatment post-segregation uh, in the integrated era of college football and how that's shifted from suppressing the rights of these black colleges into suppressing the claims of smaller schools more broadly. And in our final segment, wrapping up this, this massive history lesson, if you will, we're going to apply all of this information to how we think about the 2020 season. With the Big Ten and the Pac-12 canceling fall sports, which includes college football at these universities, we have large gaps in our narrative and how we construct these national championship narratives. How will this be rectified in 2020? What could this mean for smaller schools? We'll be looking at all of those questions in that final segment. First of all, though, we have a lot of history to get through. So grab yourself something to drink. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to go back to those earliest days of college football history. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. We'll be right back. Welcome back to episode 70 of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking about the mythical nature of the national championship at the top level of college football this week. And to really understand the mythos that has developed around the national championship, we have to go back to the very beginning of the sport. Now, as everybody probably knows who would deign to listen to this podcast, we just celebrated the 150th season of college football in 2019. Over that first decade of college football history, from the time when Princeton and Rutgers played a pair of games in 1869 that looked far more like soccer than anything we think of as the gridiron game today, the sport quickly coalesced into something uniquely American to the extent that it also took on a uniquely American approach to how we determine championships. The first time we see an actual discussion about a championship game came in 1877, just nine years after this sport was first introduced to the college landscape in the United States. A game played between Yale and Princeton over the second Saturday of December in 1877, was viewed by multiple newspaper sources as the championship of college football. Now, this game, it was played in front of 3,000 spectators on neutral ground at the St. George's Cricket Grounds in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
At the time, scoring in college football still required you to kick a goal to get a point. Touchdowns afforded you a right to a free kick at the goal, but they didn't offer you any points on their own. As such, this game between Princeton and Yale was viewed as a scoreless draw, despite the fact that Yale had scored one touchdown to none by Princeton. The Tigers made overtures about challenging Yale to another contest to... to, Princeton made overtures about challenging Yale to another contest for the championship, trying to find a more definitive answer to who was the best team. But Yale wrote them off. Nothing ever came to fruition. They saw themselves as the legitimate champions, having produced more against Princeton, despite not getting that decisive goal. Now, scoring quickly evolved over college football's history. By the late 1800s, you start to see touchdowns take on more of a significance. You see safeties take on a significance. Obviously, kicking still had a larger role in the game than it does today, but the game became more varied in how you could score. And... At the same time, even as this game starts to spread westward and southward across the United States, this national championship narrative remains exclusively a Northeastern-dominated narrative. What we think of today as the Ivy League was pretty much the exclusive purview of the national championship. It wasn't until 1896 that any team outside of what we think of as the modern-day Ivy League even laid claim to a national championship. They still fell relatively within this footprint, however, because the school that won was Lafayette College, a small liberal arts school in Easton, Pennsylvania, uh, just north of Philadelphia and directly west of New York City, pretty much. So this falls right within that natural footprint of the Ivy League. Now, Lafayette's claim, looking back, is absolutely legitimate, you would think. They went 11-0-1. Their only tie coming against a Princeton team that also factored into the national championship discussion. Later in their season, the Leopards of Lafayette opened the nation's eyes again defeating the University of Pennsylvania and ending their 34-game winning streak spanning across three years. They won this game in Philadelphia on Penn's field, taking down the Quakers 6-4, despite the fact that Lafayette was without their captain, George Walbridge, who was recovering from an operation for appendicitis. Despite tying against Princeton, and beating Penn, they were not considered anywhere in the same class as these two schools. Somebody writing in the Philadelphia Times at the end of the season basically said that the season ends with uncertainty to which is the better team, and then listed Princeton and Penn as the teams that divide the honors that season. 
They said that Lafayette's draw against Princeton and victory over Penn were flukes that really can be written off. Basically, we can wipe these from Princeton and Penn's records, and those teams are the ones that deserve the title discussion. Much like we've seen with other small schools across time then, Lafayette was written off as an illegitimate challenger in their own time, despite the fact that they were retroactively named a national champion of that season. That's part of what we need to really get at with this discussion as well. So many of these early claims, we can go back and look at the contemporary press that was writing in the season when this was happening. And oftentimes they come to a different conclusion with than what some of these mathematical systems over time have determined for the national championship. Even teams that we think of as completely legitimate take, for instance, the Michigan team that under Fielding Yost put together their point-a-minute streak from 1901 to 1904. That Wolverines team went 43-0-1 under Yost over his first four years in Ann Arbor. And indeed, as their name suggests, often scored a point-a-minute by the end of each of these games. However, even though Michigan is recognized as a national champion for each of those four seasons... They don't have uh, an undisputed share of that title. As one might expect, they were forced to share it with Ivy League schools of the period. Yale was determined co-champion in 1901 and 1902, Princeton in 1903, and Penn in 1904. But Michigan was forced not just to share that 1904 national title with Penn, but also with Minnesota a team from their own conference that they effectively avoided playing over the course of that 1904 season. Newspapers in Minneapolis determined Michigan was an illegitimate champion in that regard, despite the fact that they've been proving it season after season on the field. Nationally syndicated writers felt that Michigan was fully the equal of Yale, if not the superior, but they also had to concede that none of these teams were a definitive national champion. We've seen this over time. I won't belabor this point. We can look at this history across the years. But one thing we need to understand about these championships before the poll era is that they're largely determined after the fact. These are mathematical systems determining them. The first time we really see a mathematical system used was from 1905 to 1907, when Casper Whitney, one of the titans of early college football writing, who also introduced All-American teams with Walter Camp beginning in 1889, he first used a mathematical system in 1905 to determine a national champion. He picked Yale all three years. By that point, he was getting tired of picking the same team every year, decided to scrap that part of his work life. But the thing is, is after Whitney, you really don't see this narrative start to take hold until the 1920s. And it's, it, it really happens in 1920, in large part because that's a year where six different teams could lay a legitimate claim to the national championship. 
Henry L. Farrell, writing for the United Press International as a syndicated football writer in 1920, said, quote, Not even a mythical national championship can be established or claimed. Most any team can claim it, and it would be hard to prove that they did not rate it. End quote. Farrell was saying this in a season where six different teams laid claim to the national title. California, Georgia, Harvard, Notre Dame, and Princeton were all in that mix. Georgia Tech also had a legitimate stake to the title. Ohio State had some right to claim that as the Big Ten champion. We also saw great records at Pittsburgh, Penn State, Syracuse, Dartmouth, Boston College, and a little cool school called Stevens Tech, which was one of the early adopters of the game in New Jersey. Now, Farrell, as he describes this season, he's trying to wrap his head around all these muddled claims. But by introducing that idea of the mythical national championship, he really captures the essence of what is happening around this sport. There's a real desire to sort out among teams with wildly varied schedules, with wildly varied claims, to determine who is the best in the land. Ultimately, however, this is completely a mythical construct. By the 1920s, you see guys like Frank Dickinson and Deke Holgate introducing these mathematical systems to retroactively determine national champions. Holgate goes back all the way to 1885 to determine champions. Later in the 1920s, Dick Dunkel releases his system for determining national champions. The Bowen system comes online in 1930. The Williamson system in 1932. Litkenhouse starts releasing polls in 1934 and polling in 1935. Every one of these except Litkenhouse applied a limited retroactive calculation determining national champions going backward. As we've seen with cases like Michigan, with cases like Lafayette before them even, these national championship claims often carry greater retroactive weight than they did in real time among people. Of course, these systems that come online in the 1920s and 1930s, they're all determining different things. Very often we see years where there are three, four, five national champions determined. 1920 by no means was an aberration. That was the norm at the time. And what we see ultimately is that this uncertainty and the multiplicity of options in determining who's the champion confounded the NCAA, which never really had control over the narrative and thus sanctioned pretty much every narrative possible. This is why we have more than, well, more than 200 national championship claims among teams and ultimately more than 300 
that could potentially claim national championships over time, despite the fact that we've only had 150 years of college football play to date. Of course, the polls kind of put this off to the side. And while some of these systems like Dunkel still operate to the present, and some like Holgate operated through the 1940s, it was really the polls that started to drive the narrative once they started to come online. So after this break, we'll break down further how these polls, the Associated Press Top 25, the UCI, or the UPI, the Associated Press College Football Poll, what was originally the UPI Coaches Poll and is now the USA Today Coaches Poll, how these two came to dominate the national championship narrative from the 1930s onward, and how even those continue to offer less than definitive answers. So we'll break down this history more after this quick break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this week's Saturday Blitz podcast as we offer a little history lesson about the mythical nature of the college football national championship. We went into the pre-poll era in our previous segment looking at how claims are largely determined retroactively and how claims made in real time don't necessarily carry that same weight decades after the fact and how other claims gain greater weight with distance from their actual occurrence. What we're moving on to now is a look at how college football polls have come to have such an outsized influence on determining this national championship narrative and how it plays out in any given season. The Associated Press first started releasing a poll in 1934 over the last few weeks of the season of that year. AP Sports Editor Alan J. Gould decided the following season to determine a three-way national championship to single-handedly declare Princeton, Minnesota, and SMU triple national champions. After this happened in 1935, Looking back on those few polls that came out in 1934 in an experimental fashion, sports writers petitioned Gould to reinstate the AP poll on a regular basis, hoping that taking such an approach would allow them to find greater consensus about the top teams in a given season, rather than relying on one man's subjective opinion. As a result, the Associated Press first started releasing this poll regularly for the 1936 season. Now, for the next decade and a half, going through World War II and into that early post-war era, this poll functioned alongside these various mathematical ranking systems we talked about in the previous segment that continued to remain in operation. Polls 
decided to come online outside of the Associated Press. For instance, the Helms Athletic Association launched their own poll in 1941 that they operated until the 1980s. And then the real standard bearer working alongside the AP poll is the coaches poll, which we know from the crystal football that comes out every year and was a staple of the bowl championship series presentations. That poll is underwritten by the American Football Coaches Association and operates now with USA Today as the publisher, but previously was operated along in conjunction with United Press International. The same person or the same group that used to employ Henry Farrell, the guy who introduced the concept of the mythical national championship as a phrase in the lexicon of college football. Once the coaches start releasing their weekly poll in 1950, you see more polls proliferate in the 1950s. The International News Service starts releasing one. The Football Writers Association of America releases one. Football News has their own. The National Football Foundation also has one. All of these launch between 1952 and 1959 as a way of bulking up newspaper coverage. This is something that sells to the public. A poll is something that takes broad consensus of opinion, and while each of those opinions individually are still subjective, the poll is seen as a way to aggregate these in a more scientific fashion and to find more objective truths about who constitute the best teams in college football. At the same time as these polls proliferate, you can guess what happens next. As the NCAA accepts each of their narratives as a legitimate national championship claim, you see greater possibilities for split national championships. As these retroactive rankings increase as well, we see greater numbers of claims from the past as different people's algorithms and different people's opinions pepper how they see past seasons that they never got to see in real time. So this narrative con continues to develop in a mythical way. More teams over time are able to claim championships that they would have never dreamed of in real time. For instance, LSU's 1908 National Championship took place in, uh, at a time when they weren't even viewed as Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association champions. They didn't win their own conference. And while they made claims as the champions of the South, even in real time, LSU had no predilections toward claiming a national championship. Back then in the first decade of the 20th century, everyone knew that the Ivy League schools, or what, what we now know as the Ivy League schools, were still the dominant force in college football. 
there was no need to think of anybody else in that regard. So you took pride in being the best in your region. And that's what LSU did, even though that was pushed back against. And many writers, not just in Alabama, but also in Tennessee and other places around the SIAA footprint, viewed Auburn rather than LSU as the champions of their conference. What that gets at, though, is the fact that over time we've seen, one, more championship claims become legitimized over the years. As these polls come online, as more retroactive projections come online, more claims become legitimate in the eyes of the NCAA. That's why we've seen six different teams be able to claim a national championship in a given season. That's why in only 33 of the previous 150 seasons that have been played in college football, has there been a decisive single national champion claimed. That means in almost 80% of college football history, the national champion has been disputed. Polls certainly didn't inaugurate this reality, but they inaugurated it in a lot of ways in real time. With the coaches poll and the Associated Press poll becoming legitimate in the eyes of fans, in the eyes of sports writers, in the eyes of the teams themselves, as purveyors of national championship credentials, you could see a team win in one of these polls, but fall flat in the other. We saw this split happen most recently in 2003, when the Associated Press decided to name the USC Trojans their national champion after they ran the table and won the Rose Bowl. But the coaches, tied in with the Bowl Championship Series, named LSU their champion after they defeated Oklahoma at the Sugar Bowl for what was determined to be the BCS National Championship. We've seen this more recently as well, when even getting beyond the polls, we've seen increasing numbers of computer systems given legitimacy by the NCAA as official selectors. The most recent time this happened was 2017, when UCF finished undefeated at the end of their season and was named national champion by Wes Colley's Colley Matrix, formerly one of the computers in the Bull Championship series. UCF proudly claims that national title, and according to the NCAA, they have entirely every right to do so. Of course, that season, most of us look at Alabama as the legitimate national champion, given that they came through the college football playoff and won that college football playoff game against Clemson. Yet UCF still has a legitimated national title in the eyes of the NCAA. Again, that speaks to the fractious nature of the NCAA and the fact that it's never had a grip on the national championship narrative. And because they don't have any control over that narrative, they've effectively seeded that ground and allowed 
pretty much anybody who's had a system for any number of years to stake out a claim as an official selector. That leads to these sorts of situations of splits and different teams being able to claim titles that nobody would have ever dreamed of handing them in real time. That only speaks further to the mythic nature of the national title. This is the sort of thing that allowed a team like Brigham Young University to win the 1984 National Championship when they finished as the only undefeated team in the country and factored in ahead of teams like Oklahoma and Washington for that national championship. Now, the polls didn't split that year in determining number one, but that played a large part in determining how systems started to be shaped in the future. Ultimately, this comes at a time when the NCAA is losing even more control over its narratives. In 1984, in the summer leading up to that season when BYU wins the national championship, we see this, the Supreme Court rule against the NCAA in Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma versus the NCAA, which was effectively the College Football Association, a 65-team conglomerate of conferences and teams looking to break the TV monopoly of the NCAA. They successfully did that. That's why we have a landscape where you don't get one national game a week, but rather you can watch football on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday throughout the college football season. This eliminates any chance that the NCAA has of instituting a playoff at the 1A level, as they did at the 1AA level after splitting Division I into two subdivisions in 1978. By losing that opportunity, we saw conferences gain even greater control over their own narratives. And we saw in the College Football Association a prototype for banding together to strengthen their claims on writing those narratives for the public consumption. Now, at that time, BYU and the rest of the Western Athletic Conference was included in the College Football Association, but by the early 90s, when that began to fracture apart and conferences took on even greater significance, it pretty much fell by the wayside. You saw mid-major teams written out of the discourse and eliminated from any sort of consideration as BYU was in 1984. In the next segment after we take this break, we'll be talking a bit about that history in particular and how the Bull Coalition in 1992 its successor, the Bull Alliance in 1995, the Bull Championship Series that superseded the Alliance in 1998, and the college football playoff that came online in, in 2014, all worked to undermine a more broadly democratic function around the national championship. This was power conferences looking to have exclusive control over that narrative and to 
demythicize a narrative that remains mythical. We'll be talking about that in the next segment when we come right back from this break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody, as we deconstruct the mythical national championship and the history of this construct of the national championship. We've been talking about the pre-poll era when retroactive claims to the national title were applied in our first segment this week. In our second segment, we just finished talking about the Associated Press and the coaches' polls and how they've played around this idea of legitimizing multiple claims to the national championship. Now we need to talk about these efforts by power conferences starting in the early 1990s that aimed to reclaim control over the national championship narrative. These systems, beginning with the Bull Coalition in 1992 and continuing through the Bull Alliance, the Bull Championship Series, and today with the college football playoff, are all efforts to legitimize a single national championship game and to produce a made-for-TV championship moment out of a system like college football where over time, anywhere from 100 to 130 teams have been in the mix. And even if you break it down to just power conferences, you still have five or six power conferences at any given time with 60 to 70 teams that have had some say in how this narrative is written. These first efforts began in 1992 after... We saw back-to-back seasons where the national championship was split between the AP poll and the coaches poll. In 1990, Colorado and Georgia Tech split the title. In 1991, Miami and Washington split the title. At the end of that 1991 season, Sports Illustrated publishes an article fantasizing about what it would look like to see Miami and Washington play each other in a national championship game. By 1992, the Bull Coalition came together out of the ashes of the College Football Association to take this first step toward creating a definitive one versus two national championship game. Going back to the poll era, we've seen a couple of times where postseason contests became referenda on one versus two. This first happens in the 1962 Rose Bowl when number one USC held on to defeat number two Wisconsin 42-37 and really locked down their claim to the national championship that season. Since then, we've seen one versus two play over time on occasion, but it was one of those things where it was hardly ever guaranteed. 
with conferences locking down affiliations with bowl games to guarantee their champions a place to play in the postseason, it wasn't always guaranteed that one versus two would play one another in a bowl game. The Bull Coalition sought to change this. However, its main failing in that regard was the fact that it never really had the buy-in of two major conferences and, frankly, the largest bowl game out there. Of course, we're talking about the Big Ten and the Pac-12, who have added significance in you know, thinking similarly around college football in 2020. We'll get to that in the final segment. But just thinking about the 1990s, when this bull coalition first formed in 1992, the Big Ten and the Pac-10 at the time basically say thanks but no thanks. We want to continue our lucrative affiliation with the Rose Bowl. We have no intention of underwriting your your choice around the national championship narrative. So you see leagues like the SEC and the ACC, the Big East, which is only just beginning to come online as well, the old Southwest Conference, uh, and, uh, you know, independents that are playing around the country as well, such as Notre Dame, all signing on to this idea of the Bull Coalition, where an aggregate of the polls that happen around the country will be used to determine who gets to play each other in a one-versus-two championship game. That first year uh, is also the year when the SEC introduces its conference championship game. Alabama comes into that game against Florida with a real shot at playing for the national title. Everybody's wondering how this extra game on the schedule could impact that. Alabama survives Florida in that championship game, remains undefeated, gets their chance to play Miami, and then upsets Miami when we finally get this chance to see one versus two deliberately paired against one another. At that time in 1992, Miami is still one of the hegemonic forces of the sport. On the heels of a 1980s run under Howard Schnellenberger, Jimmy Johnson, and then Dennis Erickson, that was one of the most dominant runs sustained in college football history. They come into this 1992 game as an overwhelming favorite. Alabama takes them out, showing that offering opportunity to a team that we would probably have written off in any other season prior to that point is a valuable thing to do. Of course, the Big Ten still doesn't sign on. The Pac-10 still doesn't sign on. This goes on for three more years until the Bull Coalition gives way to the Bull Alliance. Honestly, it's a rebranding more than anything because the same stakeholders are involved and the same potential stakeholders, the Big Ten, the Pac-10, the Rose Bowl, are still sitting out. This comes online in 1995, and it runs 95 through 1997. And 
again, it still has those same issues. You look at the 1997 season, for instance, when Michigan wins a national championship outside of the purview of this bowl alliance. You have a split. This whole thing was designed to prevent splits. Finally, the bowl championship series is able to wrangle in the Big Ten, the Pac-10, and the Rose Bowl most significantly. With these three stakeholders on board, you have six power conferences that can now more effectively control the national championship narrative. This also allows him to set up the terms of the discourse around who gets to play in the other affiliated bowl games outside of that one versus two national championship. What that does is it severely restricts the access so that a team like BYU, which was shunted to the outside in 1996 despite a 13-1 record, is even further removed from opportunities to replicate what they were able to in 1984. These six conferences work to lock down that narrative, but even then, it's a narrative that can't be completely written away. As we mentioned with 2003, for instance, USC enjoys a legitimate claim to the national championship, the Associated Press gave them number one. LSU walked away with that Waterford Crystal football as the BCS national champion over Oklahoma. But USC has just as legitimate a claim to a national championship that season. Now, the Bull Championship Series worked to finagle these answers over time. When it first came online, the formula was created by... SEC Commissioner Roy Kramer working with statisticians to retroactively produce effectively the matchups that he wanted. Once he had the formula to a point tinkered where it would produce the retroactive results he wanted, they sprang it on the world fully formed. It didn't always give the results they wanted moving forward, however, which meant that this was continually a formula that was rejiggered from year to year to try to more effectively set up what the power brokers of the sport deemed number one and number two. You get failings like we see with the 2003 season. You get places where a team like 2008 Utah finished number two in most polls but had retroactive claim to number one under several NCAA-recognized selectors. Utah chose not to claim this, but as we saw later in the college football playoff era, UCF did decide to accept and embrace their national championship claim in 2017, as was their right. Ultimately, though, what this all reveals... And, you know, the real takeaway from the last three segments of this history we've looked at is there are four key things to remember with how the national championship remains mythical. You can think of it as the acronym NICE if you want. But national championships are a negotiated construct. 
These are something where, like the BCS, like the college football playoff, you need buy-in. That's why the coalition, the alliance, before the BCS did not work during the 1990s. It's why the poll era worked so well, because you had people buying into what these polls were selling, but you had multiple polls that they deemed legitimate, which is what leads to these efforts to kind of shut down that that split narrative. Even before that, you look at those retroactive systems and you get buy-in from numbers that what doesn't necessarily resemble the buy-in that happened from pundits at the time these games were being played. You look at a team like 1896 Lafayette, they have a legitimate claim to the national championship and a claim that frankly looks like it should have been legitimated in real time given the teams that they played and given the teams that they beat or tied. But those teams they beat or tied are given greater weight in real time in a way that is flattened out by the numbers when you get distance between the moment and the point of evaluation. All of this is mythical. All of it is negotiated. All of it is also illusory. It's an illusion that we create. It's an illusion that fans determine for themselves in the moment, it's an illusion that the media determines. It's an illusion that coaches determine. And it's an illusion that these schools have to buy into. It's also a contested construct. As we've seen with split national championships, not just in an era where multiple polls reign supreme, but even in the present where the NCAA has effectively accepted its inability to determine definitive national championships and has instead legitimated anybody who might determine a national champion as something that, up to the present, remains contested. A team like UCF is allowed to make that claim on the 2017 national championship because this has been contested over time and because various stakeholders have been afforded legitimacy within the way everything is structured. And finally, we need to acknowledge that this is an exclusionary construct. This is most explicitly recognized in the Bull Championship Series and its predecessors and its successor in the college football playoff. You know, we've seen increased access for the Boise states of the world, the Northern Illinois of the world, the Houstons and the UCFs and the Memphises. At the same time, there's an artificial ceiling that's increasingly bumped up a little bit with each successive contestation against the system, but it remains exclusionary. And that's the point I really want to hit on next in this, in this penultimate segment we're about to get into, is that exclusionary nature and who actually gets to count in the national championship discussion. So we're going to take a quick break here before we go into that. Grab another drink, shake out those legs. 
We'll be coming right back. Welcome back from our break to the penultimate segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking mythical national championships, how the national championship became a construct in the first place, why we continue to think of it as mythical, and how that is true even in the year 2020, year 151 of college football history. And in an era where we have something called the college football playoff. But ultimately, even a system like the college football playoff is exclusionary. That fourth tier of what we laid out at the end of our previous segment of college football as a negotiated, illusory, contested, and exclusionary construct. It is those four things that really set it as a mythical reality in college football. But it's that exclusionary aspect that we need to talk about. This goes far back, long before the college football playoff era, when a team like UCF could be shunted out of the system in 2017 and still have a claim to the national championship, but one that's not legitimated within these exclusionary constructs that are put into place to try to legitimate national champions. This goes back to the earliest days in college football. You think about what teams were really afforded that right in the national championship discussion in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And as we talked about in an earlier segment, teams like Lafayette in 1896 or Michigan even in 1904, at the end of their point-a-minute run under fielding Yost, have questions about the legitimacy of their national championships. At that time, each of those teams were forced to share them with Ivy League schools, especially those big three, or big four, if you will, of Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and Penn, who dominated the narrative in those early days. Every year that Lafayette or Michigan wins a national championship, they don't get to hold that as their own. They split the honors with an Ivy League school, and sometimes other schools as well. In real time, though, they had questions about the legitimacy of their own claims, and that speaks to this idea of who gets to count in the discussion. Let's look at this exclusionary aspect before we get into evaluating how this looks in 2020. Because I think this exclusionary aspect is the crux of what we're looking at in the modern era. We can really see this most blatantly in how historically black colleges and universities were treated in the national championship narrative over time. For all of you out there, a great read on this subject that I highly recommend is Derek White's Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. 
And those teams and the way they're treated over time really help us see how the national championship isn't something that everybody gets to play for. In this segregated era of college football history, black institutions had to make their own national championship narratives. You know, black college football first comes online in 1892 when Biddle College plays Livingstone two days after Christmas in North Carolina. And within a couple of decades, you see black newspapers, which speaks to the segregated aspects of all parts of American society under Jim Crow. It's those black newspapers that start to acknowledge nobody else is going to look at national championships among our teams, so we might as well rate them ourselves. The Pittsburgh Courier starts selecting teams in 1920 as national champions up through the end of segregation. And just like in other, in primarily white college football at that time, where primarily white institutions are playing against one another and excluding HBCUs from the discussion, we see splits among black college football teams and seasons as well. Oftentimes, these teams are forced to share the national title with one another because they don't play each other during the season. There isn't one monolithic black college football conference. Even today, when we think about black college football and, and you know the celebration bowl that's played between the Southwestern Athletic Conference and the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, two historically black conferences... That's not the totality of the story. You have increasing numbers of teams moving to the Big South, such as North Carolina A&T, or, um, you know, in other conferences in college football, the Ohio Valley Conference and others, where these teams are excluded from the narrative even today. But back then in this segregated era you basically had these teams shunted out completely. You look at, you know, the NCAA has never had complete control over this narrative. But even when the NAIA started introducing national championships at the lower level of college football, HBCUs like Florida A&M that decided to join the NAIA in hopes of having a pathway to playing and legitimating championship claims beyond black colleges at a more national level were, were kept out of the situation. Oftentimes it was segregation in places where these championship games were played that shunted them out of the system. It wasn't until 1978 when the NCAA splits into 1A and 1AA that any black college is recognized as a national champion at any level by the NCAA. Again, it's that Florida A&M Rattlers team that wins the inaugural NCAA 1AA tournament in 1978. Since then, however, black colleges have recognized that opportunities aren't always going to be as ample as they seem. This is a large reason why the Celebration Bowl was formed in 2015, because opportunities were few and far between for HBCUs to really 
reflect the unique nature of their game. And at the same time, they were neutered in a lot of ways by integration in a way that forced them to look inward and embrace these past histories and these legacies of dominance that are no longer nearly as possible on an alternate narrative level. What's happened since then, though, is while HBCUs have effectively set themselves up as a world apart within the 1AA system or within what's now known as the FCS system, the systems that were put in place since then, the Coalition, the Alliance, the BCS, the College Football Playoff, have all taken those legacies of exclusion and use them more broadly against teams outside of the conferences affiliated with these different systems. They created exclusive clubs. You think about the Bowl Championship Series, where teams from the Mountain West, the WAC, the Conference USA, the Mid-American Conference, the Big West, the Sun Belt, are all effectively kept out of the system. They did bake in some way for them to qualify for a BCS bowl game, as we saw with Utah in 2004, and with increased access to the crumbs, if you will. But what that does is that further sets up the exclusion, because when you're you're creating guaranteed crumbs. You're doing so to keep teams quiet about their lack of opportunity in other regards. The automatic access to a New Year's Six Bowl game for a group of five teams, for instance, is a way of keeping them quiet about the fact that they're effectively shuttered out of the college football playoff semifinal bracket itself. In much the same way, these HBCUs that were finally given opportunities in the late 1970s after integration had already started to dismantle so many of the structures that they'd installed to generate greatness in the first place, as these are broken down, they're finally given that opportunity. And oftentimes we see these teams given these opportunities after the fact and after their zenith has been crested and they're starting to fall back to earth. Really, we look at providing these opportunities at a point of regression to the mean. That brings us up to the present moment in 2020 when we look at these teams and we really wonder who will have an opportunity to claim a national championship How legitimate will it actually be if we look at the mythos that's been built over the first 150 years of college football history? We can honestly say that a pandemic-inflected national championship will probably carry as much retroactive weight as any other national championship claim, to be honest. And in a season like this with even fewer teams playing, we could still see splits along the way. We'll be talking about the 2020 season and bringing all of this history into the present in our final segment right after this break. 
Welcome back for our final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, and I've been here talking to you about the history of the mythical college football national championship. We've walked through the history of this idea of a national championship from its earliest roots in the 1870s through the retroactive you know, modeling that happened in the 1920s and 1930s, through the pole era that ran from the mid-1930s onward into the early 90s, and then these various efforts to lock down the national championship narrative, beginning with the Bull Coalition in 1992 and extending to the present with the college football playoff. I think a great place to leave off this week is to apply these lessons to how we might understand the 2020 college football season. We're in an unprecedented time right now with the coronavirus pandemic still impacting communities throughout the United States. Two of the Power Five conferences, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, have opted out of playing a fall season in college football and all of their other college athletic sports. We still have three conferences that, as of this moment, are planning to play. The ACC, where we have already seen the University of North Carolina go to all remote classes because of clusters of outbreaks that have already started developing throughout that campus in Chapel Hill. So it's only a matter of time, possibly, before we see the ACC go the way of the Big Ten and the Pac-12 as well. We also have the SEC looking to play in communities that have had some issues around, you know, scaling down the coronavirus. And also the Big Ten, where communities in Texas have been dealing with this as well and throughout that league's footprint. But with that said, we have about only 60% of total FBS teams playing college football this year. We don't even have enough teams to fill out every one of the currently existing bowl games in the postseason. Which really makes things extra interesting in terms of how we think of the national championship. As of right now, the college football playoff selection committee is talking a a good talk about the fact that they're going to be projecting out teams and setting up a top four at the end of this season. How legitimate will that be without the Big Ten and the Pac-12 in the mix remains to be seen. Because, you know, as we've seen as well, we have one data point so far to see how this season would have projected out if all these teams were here. The USA Today Amway Coaches Poll released its preseason top 25 list on August 6th. And at that time, we did not yet know that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 wouldn't be playing fall football. So the coaches included them in their rankings. And I think looking at that really helps us understand how mythical this construct of, of the national championship really is in college football. Clemson ranked out number one. That's hardly any surprise to anybody. 
Ohio State ranked number two. Also hardly any surprise to anybody, received the second most first place votes, 17 of them. But they're not playing football this year. All these teams behind them, the Alabamas, the Georgias, the LSUs of the college football landscape, benefit immensely from their absence. But what this tells us as well is that there are some really good football teams that won't be playing football that very well could have been the national champion of 2020. Out of the top 10 in this coaches poll that came out on August 6th, three of the top 10 teams are no longer playing football. Four of the top 12, five of the top 15, and overall nine of the top 25 teams have canceled their seasons. We already mentioned Ohio State, but you have a really great Penn State team slotted in at number 7, Oregon at number 9, Wisconsin at number 12, Michigan at number 15, USC at 17, Minnesota at 18, Utah at 20, and Iowa at 23, that are all non-factors at this point. We've seen contention within the Big Ten as to whether or not their team should play this year. The Pac-12 has been much more unified in that regard. You can listen to previous podcasts that we've talked about in terms of why these conferences made this decision, because in a lot of ways this is labor movement suppression as much as it is mitigation of a pandemic situation. That said, when we look at this from the context of the national championship, 36% of the top 25 teams in the preseason, as assessed by the coaches, won't be playing football this year. That opens the door, obviously, for the SEC, which has now six of the top 10 remaining teams with skin in the game. The ACC... Thankfully, with Notre Dame in the mix, has two teams in that top 10, as does the Big 12. But that narrative beyond those teams opens up so much more without four of the 10 FBS conferences playing football this year. We've talked so far in this podcast about situations like the 2017 UCF team that was left out of the college football playoff despite finishing the year undefeated. Could a team like UCF have a more significant chance at playing its way into the college football playoff this season? It's going to be a really interesting question, especially with Conferences playing either conference-only schedules or conference-heavy schedules at the Power 5 level. The SEC won't be playing outside of its league. The ACC and Big 12 have each looked at playing one game outside of the league. In all those cases, though, those games won't be played against one another. This will force the selection committee and the pollsters of the AP and the coaches poll to really take a subjective assessment of the quality of these conferences relative to one another. And in a situation like that, perhaps the American Athletic Conference 
and to a lesser extent the Sun Belt and Conference USA, can play their way into this discussion. When you look at this preseason coaches poll, UCF and Cincinnati were the only two teams ranked in the top 25. UCF fell at 21, Cincinnati right behind them, only three votes behind at 22. However, when you eliminate the eight teams ahead of them that ended up canceling their fall football seasons, these are both top 15 teams now. That could have a real impact on the public perception of their situation moving forward in a way that, as the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 beat up on one another, could allow a UCF, a Cincinnati, even last year's Group of Five champion Memphis, to vault up into the the playoff discussion. Of course, even if one of these teams does finally manage to break through, we're still going to be dealing with a situation where the national championship is a mythical construct. Without the Big Ten and the Pac-12 playing, it becomes very hazy as to whether or not these are the best teams in the country. That will become doubly true if the Big Ten and Pac-12 follow through on their plans to play in the spring rather than the fall. We could effectively have two national champions spread across the 2020-2021 academic year. As I've talked about in my previous irreverent look back segment at early college football history on Saturday Blitz, we have a hard time determining whether or not we're looking at calendar years for champions or allowing spring games to include in fall schedules when they are intercollegiate contests. That's going to become even murkier this year if the Big Ten, the Pac-12, the Mountain West, and the MAC all play spring football. We could very easily have a split championship yet again. We could be left wondering whether a team like Ohio State truly could beat whoever emerges from the college football playoff this year. We could be wondering, yet again, whether one of these group of five teams has a legitimate shot. Consider if, for instance, Boise State runs the table in the spring. What if UCF or Cincinnati also does the same in the fall? Will we look at all of these as legitimate claims in the future? As we've seen with the history of college football national championships, those retrospective claims only grow over time. Sometimes a school chooses to claim them, sometimes it does not. Sometimes a a shifting conference leads a school to claim far more championships than it previously did, trying to put on an, an air of gravitas around how they align with their new conference members. Ultimately, though, so many of these teams can claim that. I come back to that quote from Henry Farrell from the 1920 season. Quote, not even a mythical national championship can be established or claimed. Most any team can claim it 
and it would be hard to prove that they did not rate it, end quote. That's what we're going to be dealing with in 2020. We're dealing with a year where not even a mythical national championship can be established or claimed. Most any team that comes out unscathed at the end of this season can and legitimately should claim it. It would be hard to prove that they don't rate it, especially in a year where intersectional contests have fallen by the wayside and in a year where different Power 5 leagues could play in different seasons. What we're left with is understanding this is nothing new. College football has always been like this. The uncertainty that swirls around the top level is part of the charm of the game and the fact that multiple teams can rightly claim a legitimate championship is part of that charm as well. For all of the uproar that happened around UCF claiming their national title in 1970, for all the uproar that befell UCF when they claimed their national championship in 2017, that national championship is as legitimate as any other in the eyes of the NCAA. That falls to a legacy of the NCAA having absolutely no control over the narrative, and so allowing the marketplace of narratives to be flooded in the process. What that does for us in the end is forces us as fans to wonder whether what we're seeing really is legitimate in real time, and whether another team might have stepped in and done just as well or even better. Think, for instance, about that first year of the college football playoff. There was a huge clamor to determine who would finish in the number four spot and gain that last opportunity to play in the inaugural semifinal game at the Sugar Bowl. Alabama was already locked at number one. Oregon and Florida State were already paired in the Rose Bowl. And ultimately, it was Ohio State that got that opportunity rather than a team like TCU or Baylor. We saw Baylor go on to... We saw TCU go on to win the Peach Bowl in emphatic fashion over Ole Miss in a way that raised serious questions about whether or not they could have done the exact same in the college football playoff at the Sugar Bowl. Ultimately, Ohio State vindicated the selectors' decisions, at least in that mythical way, when they took down first Alabama and then Oregon en route to the inaugural college football playoff championship. But in the end, even that claim is no less mythical than any other we have seen over time. College football playoff will always be racked with question marks, with counterfactuals, with the what-ifs that make us survive off-seasons, that make us get through the long winters of discontent where there is no football being played. It helps us get through the springs when practices are happening and we look back and we look forward. It gets us through the doldrums of summer as we look at the schedule and 
thumb through preseason magazines and click on endless numbers of posts online, including hopefully plenty of those that we've been writing at Saturday Blitz, even as uncertainty swirls around this season. But in the end, what we find more than anything is that the national championship will always be mythical. It's always a negotiated construct in which not everyone is going to buy into those negotiations. It's always an illusory construct in which the illusion is only as strong as the number of people that buy into it. It will always be a contested construct in a way that polls will never always agree with one another. Computer algorithms won't always agree with one another. And in an NCAA system where all of these are considered equally valid, the contestation will always be an inevitability. And it is also an exclusionary construct in which a team like UCF, despite having a claim deemed legitimate by the NCAA, will be laughed off as an illegitimate contender, much like a team like Lafayette was in 1896, despite holding their own against the teams deemed better than them. Ultimately, the mythos is what we make of it as college football fans. It is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the sport we love.